Hey, God for Grown Up listeners, we'd like to invite you to join us for a special series led by Dr. Beatrice Lawrence about death and dying from a Jewish perspective. What do you plan to cover in this series? Well, Dan, I'm going to start actually working through texts in a chronological pattern. So we're going to start in the Bible and look at the experiences of people there dying and the different ideas about the afterlife that occur there. You're looking perplexed. Why would a person want to come to a Lenten series on dying? That sounds really depressing. Oh, I don't know, isn't it just interesting? It's like the weather, it happens to everyone. It's fundamentally a matter of meaning in human life, isn't it? What's going to occur? Yeah, this series will be offered at Queen Anne Lutheran Church. It has five sessions, Wednesdays, March 4th to April 1st. 6 p.m. we start with a simple supper, 6.45 to 7.30 we have our program. There is no cost, all faiths are welcome. So we invite one and all to a conversation that, like the weather, affects everyone. (laughs) Hope to see you there. Adam was the age of Yoda, which is pretty interesting. What's Yoda's age? Well, Yoda's 900-something. And Yoda is a ghost. Yoda's a baby now, too. I can't baby talk Yoda. about that because I'm really You're upset. Right. Yoda is a ghost. Yoda yes. is a ghost. He comes back. Darth Vader comes Why? back. Why do we find that so acceptable when we see movies like Star Wars? And we're like, oh, because the Force is with them and the Force right. never dies. And transform into the Force you will, and those kinds of things. Isn't that basically what Einstein said? Is it? Hi, I'm B. I'm Dan. This is God for Grownups. Our topic for this episode is gratitude. But instead of gratitude, we're going to talk about ghosts. Because it's Friday the 13th. Yes, very exciting. So my question to you first is, <laughs> do you believe in ghosts? That's a really hard question. Okay, because first of all, what do you mean by believe? That's what what people mean. That's like when people say, do you believe in evolution? And one has to ask, what do you mean by believe in that case? I mean, it's a matter of facts, right? And the second is what you mean by ghosts. Okay, so when we parse this question down, we get into some nice sort of uh, nuances. So why don't actually you go first? Do I believe in ghosts? Yeah. Well, that depends on what you mean by I. (laughs) And in... (laughs) Well, okay, back to you for a second. Okay. (laughs) When you say you don't, we need to unpack what the word believes, there's a lot of history when it comes to that word in the Jewish tradition, right? I remember reading that the word believe doesn't actually uh, occur in biblical Hebrew. Is that true or? I don't think that's true. Okay. I thought it was Richard Elliott Friedman made that argument. In, That's possible, but... It's possible, but you wouldn't agree with that? Well, there's a word we translate as belief, uh-huh. but does it mean the same thing you mean in the word that you're using right now? That we could find out. And is that the there, question? That might be not a match, but there's a word that is translated as he believed it. And is that the same thing as faith? So here's where we get into the belief versus faith thing, Right. So Abraham, for example, believed something that God told him, and God credited him for that. Isn't it, uh, the word I often see there is trust, not believes. That trust or 
placed his faith in what God said rather than believe something the way that you would believe that the way you would ascend assent to something cognitively like uh-huh. I believe in I believe the children are the future right teach them well and let them lead the way right so I show them all the beauty they possess inside okay you are a professional singer no aren't I'm not. You? you're trained in it though right uh, sure. Okay. So, um, okay. So, are you, you trained in? Never mind. Okay. So, you, I thought you were trained musically. I am. Okay. But um, that doesn't. I. I'm sorry that I broke into song. I didn't mean to do that. But that I nice. couldn't stop. It's such a great song. Okay. It is. It's probably one of my favorites. After "Pass the Mic" from the Beastie Boys. You are so and, full of it. And "Bulls on Parade" by Rage Against the Machine. Side note. Then it's "I Believe the Children Are the Future." That's Side note. Third. In the car. With my 14-year-old the other day, and you got a fight for your right to party comes on, and she's going along with it. She knows it somehow, and I'm like, do you know this is the Beastie Boys? Yes. Do you know that they're Jewish? And she goes, what? She was floored. Yeah. She did not think people in hip-hop could be Jewish. And she needs to know that if it wasn't for the Beastie Boys who fought for her right, she wouldn't, as a teenager, be able to party. She's not partying. Good. No. That's right. No. Good. There's no parting. So anyway, okay, so when you asked me the, about the question of belief. Right. And so you're talking about a cognitive belief versus a trust. I think so. I think trust, and this is pretty standard in the, certainly in the Lutheran tradition. You see this in Luther. You see it in Kierkegaard. You see it in Tillich. The the understanding that faith is more more like a trusting relationship or investing oneself, mind, body, soul, the whole person in, in, in a relationship of, of fidelity to something bigger than oneself what is versus the- believe, like I believe in evolution is not at all the same thing as I believe in God understood in this more classical sense. Okay. And that's, that's the whole purpose of Tillich's book from the 1950s, The Dynamics of Faith, where he tries to explain to a broader audience the, the fact, as the title indicates, that faith has, a, has these dynamic elements rather than is just some kind of static uh, assent to a creed or a, or a pledge or whatever. What is the difference between believing somebody... And believing and, in and, somebody? No, believing somebody... And that somebody tells you something and you trust them. What's the difference between those two? Well, I think, I think maybe it's the. That's a good question. How would how would you, I'm not. I don't want to pass the buck here, but how would you answer that? Do you I'm have not something sure in mind? There's much of a distinction between believing somebody and trusting in somebody because of what they've said. So God says to Abraham, "I'm going to give you all of these blessings." Abraham believes it, trusts it. Same thing. Really, he's taken the information, and either he believes the information or he trusts the person who gave it enough to believe the information. I would say in that use of belief, there is no distinction. The two are indistinguishable. But when we talk about the other, other ways of using belief or the other primary way of using belief in the English language, it's often, well, I believe that there are aliens on other worlds. Well, okay, but that doesn't really involve a dynamic of trust. Okay. Even if the person who, even if it's Carl Sagan who tells me that there are aliens on other worlds, I suppose I might assent to that intellectually because of his authority, although I think that would be bad to do it just for that reason. But I don't that, know. It's Carl Sagan. 
It's true. Okay. He is up there. But I, I, I don't think that means at all the kind of belief that you're talking about biblically. So, um, so was Friedman then distinguishing between the kind of belief and trust that, that is present in the Hebrew Bible and belief in dogma? Is that what he was that's saying a, does not exist? That's a nice distinction. What okay. he's ta- So yeah, I think broadly speaking, yes. What he's talking about specifically is that when it comes to the Hebrew Bible, people didn't need to believe in God because God's presence was readily apparent. There would be no need to believe in God that way, to believe that God exists when God, for example, in Exodus is encountered by the people and by Moses in particular directly. So his point is that you have this trajectory in the Hebrew Bible whereby God becomes less and less obvious, Mm -hmm. but for the vast majority of that trajectory or for the the largest part of that trajectory, belief is unnecessary because God's presence is unmistakable. And yet the people have trouble because God's presence, for example, in the Exodus story and what follows is very different from what they're used to in terms of the presence of God's. And this invisible God um, that has a speaker rather than being heard from directly, when they do hear from God directly in Exodus 19, they're like, that's scary. We don't want to hear that anymore, right? Then when they don't hear from this God or see this God for a certain amount of time, they kind of lose track of that God and they create their own God in Exodus 32. Right which we were going to talk about at some point. So, I mean, I guess I, I see the distinction there. They seem to live in a world where God is more of a given. Is that what you mean? Yeah, and again, we're talking, we're talking not about, the, the, obviously, the historical context here or what was happening outside of Scripture. Friedman is simply talking about the narrative chronology of Scripture. Right. That in the beginning, literally, almost... <laughs> Adam and Eve directly experience God. Yeah. They see God walking around in a garden, and they hear God directly. God mm-hmm. questions them, such that the word belief would be redundant. You wouldn't need to believe in something that you can readily see. And so what he argues is that to a greater, in this case, or lesser degree, the experience is obvious. The, the, the Israelites at the bottom of, of Mount Sinai still hear God, and they still see the storm cloud. Um, so, again, belief would be redundant the way that we understand it. That, that's, his, that's his point. I would say, I wonder, bringing this back full circle, when it comes to ghosts or the paranormal... Yeah, there we are. Mm-hmm. Is it the case that if you said, for example, that, well, I, I believe in ghosts because I've had an experience of a ghost, I would almost say, well, that's redundant. The question is whether I would believe you or place my trust in you by right. assenting to that. So, so yeah, I mean, I think it can have those connotations in the English language and like all words, there's a, there's a range, but, but I think the basic distinction is like the one that you made about dogma versus say a living faith. We are incredibly nerdy that we went this direction when we started with ghosts. But I, okay, so I will say that the word belief bothers me in this regard because of um, what it connotes. So people talk about believing in God. People talk about believing in this truth or that truth, things that are intangible, things that can't be proved. That we're talking about faith in my mind. That faith is, uh, is about believing in an intangible reality? 
believing in an intangible something that something. can't be proven. Yeah, that's actually the view that Tillich, in particular, goes against in his book, The Dynamics of Faith. Which you'll get to in a second and tell me about. But for me, to say, do you believe in ghosts? My answer would either be, I think there are probably ghosts, or I know there are ghosts, or no, I'm relatively certain there are no ghosts. I would not use the word believe. You wouldn't? You wouldn't? No. Why wouldn't you? I'm super uncomfortable. I've managed to do a lot of writing on interreligious engagement and never use the words faith and belief. That's pretty amazing. Is it because you're writing in an academic context no. and you, why do you, why do I'm you writing re- as a Jew. And so the words faith and belief don't come into play normally when you're They are misconstrued in the context of Christian-Jewish relations because of the dominance of Christian understandings of the words faith and belief. And I don't want to use those words because then those categories of thought and those relations to ideas become imposed into Jewish experience. And then the Christian partners in the conversation don't realize that those dynamics in Judaism are radically different. What was your definition of faith sometime back it was at a, a forum i attended where you or, or, or interfaith dialogue between christians and jews where the jews just say please just don't hurt us or something like well, that. well no i mean a success <laughs> <laughs> right. you did say that <laughs> i did the ultimate goal is please don't kill us right that's yeah. you know why do jews engage in this some of them are Survival. certainly interested but just historically the motivation would be so they don't kill us right yeah i would say that I agree. I could, I, well, I could see where that would be a, an issue, uh, and it makes sense as to why you wouldn't use the words faith or belief because they could be what there. There's a dominant meaning given to them by by the Christian tradition, and that can be imposed upon uh, um, uh, Jews in this conversation. I would say what I'm talking about when it comes to Paul Tillich and the dynamics of faith is he, within the Christian tradition, is pushing mm-hmm. back against the dominant meaning. And what does he say it is? Well, the dominant meaning is that is that faith is belief, and that belief is assent to typically a set of propositions, such that I believe, like in a, like in a creed, I believe in the the uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, sure. Creator of heaven and earth. And even though, as Marcus Borg points out, the term or the phrase "I believe" in Latin means "I give my heart to," that meaning has been here lost in translation such that it becomes reciting assent to a set of intellectual propositions. That's not, Tillich points out, what faith really is understood as a kind of attitude of trust, where you give your heart to, in the older sense of the the creed, something that is bigger than you are. Without proof. Yes, it requires, there is that gap, right? But it not necessarily. There are many things in this world to which we give our hearts that, that are right in front of us. I mean, we give our heart to the success of a nation. If we're, say, if we're, uh, if we're fighting in a war, that could become an object of faith. Mm-hmm. Or obviously, a, a nation state like Mussolini's Italy or Hitler's Germany. These are all examples of, of faith where you give yourself over to something that promises the fulfillment of your expectations. And as Stoic mm. points out in the case of idolatry, inevitably fails to deliver what it promises. So that's obviously something very different than merely assenting to a set of intellectual propositions. 
Maimonides wrote, I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, and even if he is delayed, still I believe. Maimonides wrote it slightly differently, but then it turned into a song. And there it was saying, here's this thing for which I have no proof, but I believe it's going to happen, even though I haven't seen it yet. Um, but the faith would be in giving himself over to that, I, I would argue. I mean, maybe part of the problem here is that, at least in my case, I'm assuming that there is a clear distinction between faith and belief, when in fact these terms overlap both in English usage and in the usage of other languages. The word for believe and faith in that sentence are the same word. That's just how they're right. translated. Um, or the same verbal root, I should say. So, so this is, this is totally interesting. How does this apply to ghosts? Okay, I can say this. I've not had an experience of a ghost. I'm not looking for one. It'd be okay if I didn't have one. But um, I'm unwilling to say other people who claim to have had the experience are wrong. And with how little we understand about what happens to consciousness after a person dies, my lack of experience cannot lead me to completely write off the possibility. How's that for an answer? I think that's pretty good. You have you also have a tradition that that historically has held, correct me if I'm wrong, that the soul or or whatever equivalent there is to it lingers around the body sometime after its death, correct? Some traditions do, others do not. Okay. Yeah, some traditions say that they linger and also in Hasidic Judaism, there are a lot of tales of ghosts, and there was a guy, for example, who died and then realized he needed to ask his wife for forgiveness before he could move on, so he went back and visited her. Um, and in Jewish mysticism, there's a lot about all these things. But caveat, I have not yet undertaken a study of Jewish mysticism, so I can't speak to that. Anyway, so there's stuff like that, and you do you do find teachings that say that death is a process that takes time. But in the Bible and in the earliest rabbinic literature, we don't really have a concept of a soul separate from a body. Right, right. I think, so I remember in a previous episode we were talking about this issue, and I mentioned how in the Gospel of John, Mm -hmm. Lazarus, after he dies, Jesus waits four days. Because right. at the time, one tradition mm-hmm. one tradition was that that's how long it takes for the person to be convinced that he or she is really dead. So does that mean that you would believe that one can only experience a ghost within the first four days after a person dies? Do I believe that? Yeah, you never answered the question about what you think. Well, I think what's interesting about that story is that it seems to plug into a broader belief, which I do, I'm open to, which is that there is something of us that lingers a bit after we die. Uh, the, I like to use the phrase, the, the constellation of our personality, that there's some kind of pattern to me and to you and to all people that is endemic to who we are, and that, and this is without proof, but that it somehow uh, survives at least for a while before it, what, falls into oblivion or evaporates or is 
uh, brought into the fullness of God. Those are all different options. I like the third, but I fear the second. I fear oblivion. So it makes me, when I think of ghosts, I think of, I think of spirits. The apostle Paul talks about elemental spirits, but I think of spirits that are, like most people, uh, believe, I think, that are, that have, have as of yet not turned toward the light or, more darkly, as of yet, have not fallen into or been consigned to the the abyss of oblivion. So, so I like you. I I've never had an experience of the paranormal, thank God. But I do. I do. I've never had a direct experience. You're you're shaking your head. What what's what are you, what are you thinking? Something weird happened here once. Here, so here is the house in which I live that is, according to someone else, haunted. And there are other stories that I've heard about doors opening and closing inexplicably. That happened at a time when this house was inhabited by six or seven people. So the obvious explanation is that someone else living (laughs) was closing the door. But I live alone, and... Cross my fingers, cross my heart, praise be to God, I have never had a paranormal experience. And I haven't had one my whole life. But I have been in houses where other people, including this one, will tell me that they sense something. And I've certainly heard in my own family and and from friends and, of course, beyond, uh, meaning other people, (laughs) that's... (laughs) I have heard stories like this. I just somehow think that if there is anything like that, I have been spared because I, I don't think that I could uh, I, that I could mentally withstand that kind of encounter. I think it would it would scare the bejesus out of me it's, to a point where I might fall apart. Some people seem to have experiences that are actually. Um, I wouldn't say enriching, but they learn a great deal. It broadens their perspective. Other people have experiences where they feel targeted, right? How would you explain places that are haunted in perpetuity? Um, we are, tonight, we're going to go watch The Shining, and it is set in a hotel that Stephen King visited once, and he stayed in the room purported to be the most haunted, and that's when he got the idea for writing the novel, so there are these places that are seen to be perpetually haunted, and we have to ask ourselves, what's going on there? Is it an extended hoax? Is, it, um, is there some weird energy thing happening in the place? Is it possible that there are people, some form of living things that, that don't leave when they should, and they stick around and they're trying to talk to us? I mean, I've watched way too many TV shows. I watched all of Supernatural, right? All of it. I watch all of these weird ghost chaser thingies. Um, But what about those? So I think the example of Stephen King, and I I was at that hotel about two years ago. The Overlook? Yeah, I'm just glad. I think it's a resort. It is. It's not. It's called that in the movie. Mount Hood, I think, in Oregon, right? Isn't that the place? I thought it was in Colorado. Well, the place that I visited, part of it was, The Shining was filmed there. Maybe it's a different (gasps) place. Oh, okay. But... I think it's very telling that Stephen King goes to the room that was haunted and doesn't actually have an experience of the paranormal. He when didn't? I No. I mean, what oh. you're telling me is that he got the idea for the story, but oh. I didn't hear anything in your summary about him actually having a paranormal experience. I just don't know if he did. 
Right. When I, when I uh, first moved in here, I was told by a former member of my congregation, the congregation owns this house, this is a parsonage, I was told that one of the rooms is haunted. And so several... <laughs> welcome to the parish. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's quite the welcome wagon. <laughs> Got a variety of other gifts, including anxiety, depression, now fear based mm-hmm. on the story of haunting. But I... But I uh, made a point of sleeping in the the room in this house that is supposedly haunted. And thankfully, nothing occurred. I did it when my mommy and daddy were here, (laughs) when my parents were here sleeping in my room. And I thought, well... I'll just sleep in the in, in the other room. So yeah, I know. And if so, I need them, I can sleep with them. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so so nothing happened, and I am glad that I slept in that room. Now that room is colder than the other rooms, and it's it's different. It, the person who lived in it was apparently ultimately committed suicide. He was part of a group home here. He committed it off site, which I guess people say makes it less likely then that he would be the the ghost but i haven't experienced anything myself and again i wonder if part of it is if there is indeed this phenomenon of 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 the paranormal maybe some of us are much more um susceptible or uh, or more capable of experiencing this than others in my case i'm glad i'm not but I also did a house blessing with a fellow pastor mm-hmm. just to kind of to make sure, even though, to come back to our basic topic, I don't really believe in ghosts except when it's around 3 in the morning. And oh, oh, God, everybody, right? Actually, I'm really happy at 3 in the morning, but... Um, <laughs> you are? I'm a night owl. Yeah. Totally. Well, but um, So no. am I, but I go to bed at 2. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're a little too old for that, aren't yeah. we? And here we keep doing it. I'm 35. I don't know how old you are. Okay, there you go. Um, no, that's that's really interesting. What I what occurs to me when thinking about this is that I certainly believe there are people terrible enough that they deserve to suffer, even afterlife. I do. Okay. Um, tell but, me, tell me more about that. Which which people belong in that category for you? I can think of obvious examples, but who goes there? Do I have to go? Do I need? Okay. Um, You're the one who said it. You people who abuse children and animals, people who commit acts of sexual violence, people who defraud the poor, people who, lives, who live on the backs of the disenfranchised. Um, I think there are evil people, in addition to the great examples that I'm sure right. that you were thinking of. And, and so them suffering, to me, kind of feels like it's appropriate, but there must be some people, if this happens who are lingering, who are very lonely. And that makes me sad. Do you think then that the, the, the people who merit suffering in this case... <laughs> Don't you like that I get to decide? I love it, okay. yeah. <laughs> the people who merit suffering in this case, their suffering is not to be, to be forced to linger here unhappily for a time? Is that, is that their suffering? I don't know. I don't, I don't know, but... When I have an image of people lingering, and, and these are the experiences people have of ghosts, my first thought was uh, feeling for people who would be stuck in that position and very lonely. Right. And my second thought was, but not all of them. Right. The unfortunate thing is that if, uh, if people who deserve suffering are the ones who linger, or, or at least yeah. among the ones who linger, then they continue beyond the grave to get to inflict their suffering on right. people. 
which really raises the bigger theological question of what kind of God would permit that or will Oh my God, that. you went there. I did. I mean, it seems, it, I think that's a, a, a challenging issue. And I went there because we're talking now about, about suffering mm-hmm. after we die. And obviously that's, that presupposes some kind of justice, I think, when it comes to, when it comes to morality. You know, so we're having this conversation and yet at the same time, you know me and you know that I, I believe that justice is mostly what people carry out when they do the right thing. Not that there is karmic justice. Right. Um, I do think that it is beautiful and wonderful that sometimes things work out well. But I think it is common enough that they don't, that we can't attribute it to a great divine computer making sure all the balance sheets have been worked out. And so I don't see a sense of universal justice in that way, but I don't have a God concept that involves somebody paying attention to every little thing. True. I mean, I think I know in the case of, I remember reading about this in a theologian named uh, Jürgen Moltmann, German theologian. And I remember it was it, he was writing about immortality and he was saying that contrary i remember thinking contrary to what a feminist theologian i read rosemary ruther said about the afterlife she said that the survival of the ego is basically the the ultimate dream of the man of the male that wow. that the male ego he she said is the epitome of of uh, the, the belief in the immortality of the soul is the epitome of the desire of the male ego. Fascinating. Yeah. What, what do you think? Well, I, I think there is certainly some truth in that. That, uh, that uh, So I think that she's, she's, she's hit something there. But then I remember reading Moltmann, and the reason I bring him up is that Moltmann argued that resurrection of the dead is not an expression of male egoism. He said it's, it's God's expression of justice. And that those who have been harmed and oppressed in this life uh, are promised new life in the resurrection of the dead. And I think that goes all the way back to Daniel chapter 12, Mm -hmm. where you have people in the Jewish tradition, the Jewish faith, for lack of a better word, I know we're still problematizing faith (laughs) and belief, but but people who who suffered in this world because of their faith and were unjustly um, persecuted and, and died that God did something. That doesn't make God this computer that you're talking about, but it does mean that God does something in the face of pervasive even injustice. And I think that is possible. Not all the time. And one can't count on it. I guess. But I... How do you, how do you deal with resurrection? Is that some... I know Maimonides... Talk about belief, right? Wasn't that one of Maimonides' articles of belief? 13 articles of belief or faith. There the words are also interchangeable in translation. Yeah, one of them was in Resurrection of the Dead. Of course, Maimonides wrote this list essentially saying, if you're going to be a Jew, you need to believe the following things. And, And so it has the existence of God, the perfection of God, the unity of God, the validity of prophets, that Moses was the best prophet, that the Torah came directly from God, Resurrection of the dead, the coming of the Messiah. I'm blanking on a couple. And um, what's funny about that is he said, if you're going to be a Jew, you have to believe these things. And, you know, if you could find Jews today that believe those things, I mean, you would, but they'd be in sort of the far 
fanatical community. So I enjoy sharing that with students and then saying that I'm pretty much one for 13 at what, this point. What's that? I, I mean, the idea of God, mm-hmm. like I'm still like living with that idea. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, resurrection of the dead. We pray, we pray for it. Um, in the three daily prayer services, there's one called the Amidah or the standing prayer or the 18 um, blessings. And one of them uh, mentions um, the raising of the dead praising God for raising the dead. It's been changed in progressive communities to God who gives life to all and not God who raises the dead. So because people, there's a movement in Judaism towards seeing references to supernatural events as being unnecessary to have a vibrant Jewish life. And so references to those supernatural events can be rephrased. What's the movement called? It, everything outside orthodoxy. <laughs> I, I, I want to go back to Maimonides because I right. think the, the example you gave actually illustrates an earlier point that I was trying to make. Maybe we were trying to make. I was. And that is that when he takes a living faith and turns it into a, a set of articles and a creed, it almost fossilizes faith. It seems to to turn it in. It seems to take something living and turn it into something, something dead. And then the whole purpose is to assent intellectually to these propositions, uh, of which you can only assent to one. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't even. I don't want to, because I know you. I can say this. I wouldn't describe what I know of your attempt to engage whatever it is we call God to be. <laughs> To the be existence a, of God. To be an okay. ascent. It, it's no. not in that regard. It, it's no. it's more of a, a struggle. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what mine is. So when we talk about things fossilizing, I always go in my head to Julius Fellhausen, who believed that ritual causes the death of a religion. He was an anti-Semite, and he was also anti-Catholic. And so in his mind, the ritualized elements of the Hebrew Bible and subsequent Judaism represented a dead faith, and that what faith had been true was roughly equivalent to Protestant Christianity. Um, But I, I don't know. I know that Maimonides, it was appropriate for his time and his place to have a sort of systematic way of talking about this. He was living among Muslim theologians and uh, that kind, and he was a scientist among other things. So coming up with a whole system makes a lot of sense. But it is true that the history of Jews is of looking at that and going, huh, interesting, what do you think? I don't know, what do you think? Like that's, and it lives and it's in a song that we sing and it shows up in references and in prayers, but See, the history of the equivalent of that in the Christian tradition is Christians looking at going, huh, I believe this. What do you think? Well, I don't believe that. Well, you're going to hell. Really? I would, that's a caricature, <laughs> obviously, but, but I, think there, I think a lot of people are, uh, have pointed out that, uh, I'm thinking Karen Armstrong, among many, have pointed out that the Christian tradition places much more emphasis on belief understood as mm-hmm. submitting to a set of propositions mm-hmm. rather than a relationship of of, of trust and action. an attitude of trust. Yeah. yeah. And definitely less emphasis on orthopraxy right. than you have in, in both the Jewish and probably the Muslim faith as well. Although that one's, that one's, that one's harder to unpack. Yeah. Yeah. But so coming full circle, we've talked about belief, faith, 
ghosts. Wait, we have to talk also about demons? Demons. Yeah. All right. Do we have time to talk about demons? Demons will be part two. So our next session, we'll talk about demons. This session, we have tried (laughs) not even to prove the existence of ghosts, but just to stay on the topic of ghosts. <laughs> but that we're gonna go watch we're gonna go watch The Shining. So yes. this is if you could continue with us, that would be So to summarize, mm-hmm. your view of ghosts is what? I don't know, maybe. I don't know, maybe. I certainly can't say there aren't. What are you, what's yours? My view is that on the one hand, if I had an experience of the paranormal, it would at least be confirmation of something that I otherwise question endlessly which is an existence after death which is well not only an existence after death yes but also the existence of something more than what we see so on the one hand ghosts and my experience of them would be great but i'm not inviting that because i think the experience of a ghost or ghosts could also be my demise in which case i would become a ghost and i would haunt you. This is what I'm asking. No, I was just listening to a story on NPR about human composting. It was so exciting. And I was just thinking, where would you haunt? Who would you haunt? Where would you haunt? You go I don't know. I asked you the question first. I'm still thinking. I don't have an answer yet. You don't. You don't know where you would haunt, really? I would haunt my children, but not in a scary way. Okay. Also, I don't want to because I want to live very, to be very old. Okay. So I don't want to think about it. I want you to live to be very old, too. Thank you. To be... At least the age of Job, if not the age of Adam. He was like 147. Right. Okay. <clears throat> we'll see. Anyway. Adam was the age of Yoda, which is pretty interesting. What's Yoda's age? Well, Yoda's 900 something. And Yoda is a ghost. Yoda's a baby now, too. I can't baby talk Yoda. about that because I'm really You're upset. Right. Yoda is a ghost. Yoda yes. is a ghost. He comes back. Darth Vader comes why, back. Why do we find that so accepting or acceptable when we see movies like Star Wars? And we're like, oh, because the Force is with them and the Force right. never dies. And transform into the Force you will, those and kinds of things. Isn't that basically what Einstein said? Is it? Energy? That we transform, that we're simply energy that transforms into another Energy can't be created or destroyed. He might have. I, I'm not an expert in these things. I can't You didn't add. say where you would haunt. Oh, right. So I noticed, by the way, I, I can't add. And then I was eventually <laughs> going to get to, and I can't do quantum physics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, where do I think, where would I haunt? Mm-hmm. I would go to places that I want to go in this life, but I don't get to go too much. And places where... I I would not be in any danger in that form. So I would love to go. I love the sound of of uh, of trains at night. So I would probably haunt a train. Wow. Or I would haunt uh I would haunt some kind of rail yard or I do they call them that rail yards? I don't actually know. I would because haunt Because I don't work there. So I would haunt places that are that are alluring to me already. But I wouldn't do it in a, hopefully, in a, in a scary way. I would want to haunt. <laughs> oh, it's not scary at night. I guess not. Where trains oh, are. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Okay. So, okay. Uh, so, yeah. So, and you don't have, you don't have any, any idea what, what or where you would haunt? Honestly, I, I just want to say goodbye to loved ones and then move on. Hmm. Do you, did you ever read Tennyson's In Memoriam? Yeah. The poem yes, by Tennyson. Yes, I did. My father's a Victorian scholar. Right. And so he imposed that on you the way he you had imposed the Beastie Boys on your children? 
I, yes, we were reading lots of Victorian poetry, novels, yes. A-A-A-A-H-H in memoriam. Right, that's yeah. right. And I remember reading that, and he talks about how he will have one last meeting with, yeah. with it was Arthur, I think. Yeah. With Arthur, and then they will, Arthur will fade away into the, into the oblivion. And so, yeah, I mean, I know that when I, I've had conversations with my mom about this, and she, at one point, we made a pact that if there is anything after, she would, she would make, make it known to me. But I think now we're both at a place where, and we've talked about this, we just don't know. And so, when it comes to, to, to ghosts and those kind of things, that's one thing. But when it comes ultimately to our post-mortem existence, if there is anything, I don't know. Maybe after, maybe after a little lingering, we all return to the source, whatever that is. Or come back periodically. Halloween is my favorite holiday. I don't have a favorite holiday, I've just realized. <laughs> because I, I don't like most of them anymore. Because you're clergy. They're work days. Yeah, they're work days. That's that's for sure. I'm trying to think of a holiday that I like. I don't mind Thanksgiving. That's what we were going to talk about anyway. Gratitude. So oh yeah, it's we probably there that. that 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 will end. So uh, next time we'll talk about the demonic. This time we talked about more broadly the paranormal, ghosts, and uh, until then, y'all be well. Good night. 